0: What was that? (laughs) that's has, not how this show starts Is
1: that nauseum finally gun off the rails <laughs> I don't
0: know what's going on here did we here. jump the shark uh, maybe that was bizarre that was Tarzan it, oh it was So this yes. is actually going to make sense that was jungle sounds okay all right all right so that's pointing us to the theme of this episode that's pointing us to the theme okay all right <laughs> welcome listeners to episode 117 of the odd nauseam podcast my name is dr. Jeff Winkle I'm down here in the bunker um, after a, a a lengthy absence a lengthy a, absence I'm down here with my good friend Dr. David Noe the and
1: fans were getting restless yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah
0: exactly I'm feeling some some, uh, some anger out there right some frustration
1: yes but we're back we're back yes and we're gonna take a swing to the deep dark jungles of early 20th century. Pulp fiction. Why Why on earth would we do this? Because, Jeff, okay. everything, everything in literature and culture in the West can be related to the classics. That's right. I knew that. It's like that guy in My Big Fat Greek Wedding, right? Which one? The dad
0: Oh, that's right. Everything can be. Like, Everything
1: tra- is connected to Greece somehow. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> including Tarzan and tradition. So that was the fabulous Johnny Weissmuller. Oh right. Uh, with his Tarzan yell. Yeah. And uh, did you watch Tarzan as a kid? I
0: never did. What? No, I mean I, I saw some of like the like the cartoony knockoffs. So I think I saw George of the Jungle. Oh yeah. Which is kind of Tarzan light. Yes. Right. Were you into Tarzan as a kid? Yes, I loved it. Did you really? I read all the books. <laughs> you did. <laughs>
1: That's right. I used to swing around in trees. And oh. I thought it was great stuff.
0: Did you? Uh, did you? Um, did you get the yell down? The, the Tarzan yell. I tried it
1: as a kid. <laughs> thought I could talk to animals. The whole nine yards. Man,
0: fantastic! So yeah. you, you are you're juiced for this one. I
1: am. Right, okay. right. and we're we're uh, walking into preambulating into perambulating into some uh, potentially dangerous territory. How so? Well, I believe uh, Tarzan has been totally and completely cancelled. What? Racism, sexism misogyny, uh, chauvinism, white supremacy,
0: wow, he the checked, whole nine yards. He checked all
1: the boxes. <laughs> he checked all the boxes. But we're going to approach it here uh, this week and perhaps next week if this runs into two episodes okay. from what I think is a really interesting perspective. Yeah. And the jumping off point is going to be uh, one of my former professors, uh, Dr. Jack Holtzmark, Erling B. Holtzmark. He went by Jack, mm-hmm. uh, who was, until his death last summer, the world's leading authority on Tarzan. Is that right? As well as being a classics professor. So
0: n- not just Tarzan in the classical tradition, he was an expert on Tarzan.
1: Yes, you've heard of the History Channel?
0: Yes, I've heard of it. Yes. The, okay.
1: <laughs> You're not going to say History Channel?
0: <laughs> History Channel, Thank yes, you. right?
1: <laughs> when the History Channel did a story on Edgar Rice Burroughs and mm-hmm. the production of Tarzan, Jack Holtzmark is the one whom they interviewed. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Wow, I hope you get a hold
0: of this episode. That's right. Okay. And we're
1: going to get into that and more. Yes. But first, I have to ask, how was Greece? You you were the cause for our lengthy absence. It was.
0: I was. Yes. Um, Greece was great. Greece was wonderful. Um, it was. It was great to take my family there. Um, the you know, the stuff that I was most nervous about the 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 transport and the uh, you know the, the the connections and all that stuff and, and kids. Um, for the most part, went very well. I, I had two of my boys um, uh, get a flu bug the first two days. We oh, had, no. Yes, and so they were, uh, were in Pericles'
1: revenge, they call that, I, I, I think.
0: I, yes, exactly. So it took us a while to kind of get going. Right. But once everybody was was up and about, it was really quite wonderful. It was it was sunny. Right. It was beautiful. We had a place that looked out on the Parthenon. Oh, incredible! And so we had yeah, kind of a roof terrace that kind of looked all around this this beautiful, you know, quaint little neighborhood. Some spina copita. Oh, of course. Eat lots of olives. Lots of olives. Lots of. Lots of euros, I, feta. I, I got I got uh, four euros from my favorite window in Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I do. Right? That's yes.
1: a great place. When yeah. they load the fries on the bottom, oh, yes, <laughs> it is so good. You right. eat to the bottom of this delicious sandwich with the tzatziki and the you know the shaved pork, and yeah. right at the bottom is fries. Fries,
0: exactly right. Which just That's when the you think it couldn't get better. Exactly. Right. No, I ate some great food, um, and so I I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show, but I was there to uh, in part to do. A photography project at Eleusis, mm-hmm. and so the end result hopefully will be a kind of a, a visual virtual um, walkthrough experience mm-hmm. um, of every corner of that site. Excellent. And so I spent um, uh, a good three four hours at Eleusis, most of that having it completely to myself. Right. As you know, Eleusis it's not part of the main tourist. No, trail. it's not. People blitz by it to get to Mycenae. And, That's right. And, Corinth, and, Delphi. Right. Um, and so it's wonderful that it's this really kind of uh, uh, kind of. Uh, off the beaten path, right. Forgotten sight. You like those kinds of places. I do and I, and I love and especially the you know the story of the um, initiatory mysteries that happened there. I find right. it endlessly fascinating.
1: Yes, Demeter was
0: there. yes. and so I, I was I had made this and mapped out a plan that I thought I could if I walked through and with my 360 camera and if I could you know get about maybe 40 shots mm-hmm. and then the software will be able to kind of stitch them all together into a into a, uh, an experience. Um, I ended up taking 217. Oh my goodness! Right, <laughs> so now That's I'm quite the, an experience, right? And so now I'm in the in the long process of editing all of those and cleaning them up, and and in all the shots where you know my goofy head makes an appearance, <laughs> I can I can edit that out. Yeah, and then we're uh, gonna stitch that all together. And hopefully by sometime this summer, have it kind of up and running. In some form project on on the web. Yep. Right.
1: So do you want a corny title suggestion? Please do. This is something that would be on the BBC maybe or okay. NPR. Elusive, elusis. Oh, I like that. That's corny, isn't that it? That is very corny. With some kind of atmospheric music playing yes. in the background, some some uh, what dry ice kind of blown across nice. the screen.
0: Exactly right, right, right.
1: I'll let you take care of it. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be much better.
0: Uh, one thing I, I would, uh, I mean, the last time I was in elusis was with you. yes many years,
1: 2011, ago. Right,
0: a long time ago. And if you remember, they have that museum at the top of the hill. Yes, I do remember. And it was—it's kind of rinky-dink. Yep. It's kind of you know a, a few rooms and, mm-hmm. and stuff, just kind of you know nailed to the wall. Right. They've redone the whole thing. Oh, great. And what's really nice is they- snack bar. No snack bar. Oh, They're I'm not out. there yet. I'm out. Right. But what they have is—is is now they have the—the the artifacts arranged as they relate to the different days of the of the mysteries. Oh. And so as you walk through the museum. Yeah, uh, the um, the lights actually dim. Nice, get, and it gets darker until you get to the last room, where it's in complete darkness. And you get kind of this this almost candlelight effect. Clever. It's really, really well done. Yes, and, thematic. That's nice. And so they've kind of redone that whole museum into a, an actual huh. kind of walkthrough experience. Wow. And so I, I I was very pleased. And, yeah. And, and surprised to find that.
1: That's excellent. Here, speaking of walkthrough experience. Yes. We have a shout out we this do. week. <laughs> That's right. And uh, this individual. Um, you know, we might have to dedicate an entire episode just to this gentleman's shout out <laughs> because we're going to give the folks um, a highly edited version. I'm not sure you've still read the entire email. And no. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't say it. Say it. Okay. <laughs> you want to start us out here?
0: Sure. So uh, Mr. Gabriel Cool writes, right. uh, my name is Gabriel Cool. I am a fairly new listener to the podcast, but in the course of a single week, um, he discovered us just uh, very recently. Uh, he's gobbled up so many of our episodes he says, he first stumbled across you, Dr. Noe, uh, through your Latin Per Diem channel on YouTube, which he's been using for sight reading, grammar practice, and as a way to discover new authors and texts. So there, I mean, that's got to make you feel good. Yeah, I'm happy about that's that. That's fantastic. For sure. right. yeah. He says, what initially struck me when I watched my first episode of Ad Nosium, uh, Mortal Republic, that was uh, Mr. Mr. Ed, Ed, Ed Watts', Watts book, yep, was the stark contrast between Dr. Noe's all business vibe and Latin Per Diem versus the much more avuncular aw shucks dad persona for the podcast. Now, hold on here. <laughs> First of all, I don't have any vibes. I don't even know what a vibe is. Right. Um, I, I mean, I'm reading this. Okay. I, I, I don't this know. resonates with you, doesn't no, it? No. Well, I, de- I definitely wouldn't say that you have an aw shucks personality. No. In the podcast, But I, I like that people are getting that vibe. Okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he continues. Of course, what also struck me and what keeps me coming back is the wonderfully engaging material in the dialogue of the podcast. Um, he's, his personal favorites uh, include the, this, the episodes on Latin's children literature. Which
1: was uh, entitled Licensed to Illa.
0: Nice. By you, That's remember? Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Stocking Stuffer episode. Rock These Socks. That's right. Yep. Um, the textbook episodes with our friend uh, Patrick Owen.
1: Right. And he also... Owens, the... Patrick Owens. Owens, sorry, yeah.
0: yes. In the episode on uh, Erasmus. Uh, Dr. Amphibolis, I presume. Yes, that's right? correct.
1: Yes. That was one of my favorites too, because it's such interesting material. Yeah. I'll I'll pick this up here so you can take a breather. Okay. I presently work in the national security sphere outside the nation's capital. He works in a sphere. That sounds uncomfortable. It
0: does, exactly. Where do you sit down? He's on a motorcycle, <laughs> you know, and just goes round and round. I'm, 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 I'm visualized like a hamster, like in, in, a, in a ball. <laughs> right, right.
1: And I'm pursuing graduate studies in that field, he says, but I studied Latin and Greek as a classics major at Randolph College. Oh, yeah. Yep. Some fascinating pieces of classical trivia about my alma... Okay, Gabe, we didn't ask for this. <laughs> All right, about my alma mater. It possesses Mirabaladictu, mm-hmm. a complete Greek theater of stone called the Dell. He doesn't say why.
0: Oh, it sounds interesting. I think
1: it was better. It was either that or the Hewlett-Packard. <laughs> yeah, right. Carved into a hill. From 1909 to 1954, back when Randolph College was Randolph-Macon Women's College, the Dell hosted student performances of Aeschylus Sophocles, Euripides, and Aristophanes in the original Greek.
0: Uh, How far have we fallen?
1: Not the knockoff Greek. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'm going on with this because here's someone who needs a shout out of her own, I would think. What is more, Dr. Mabel K. Whiteside or Miss Mabel led every single one of these productions successfully produced the entire Oresteia for her retiring year. Wow. That's amazing. That's incredible. Amazing. My advisor, says Mr. Cool. Dr. Amy R. Cohen revived this tra- this tradition in 2000 with a few key changes. Greek was dropped for English. The play became a became a biennial tradition. All of the performers use Greek theater masks, which we all make by hand. Though we do make 3D prints of people's faces, courtesy of the printer Medusa. I don't know what that is, but
0: that's the name of the printer. We're deep in the weeds. Sometimes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> all right. Wow. My goodness. He uh he concludes. My last note here will be that during quarantine, I attempted he stresses, attempted to translate Ulysses S. Grant's account of Sherman's March to the Sea as recorded in Grant's memoirs into classical Latin.
1: That's a valiant attempt.
0: Wow. So one day when my Latin composition skills are more of a match, I will finish that attempt. All right. All right. Thank
1: you for listening, Gabe, very much. We really appreciate uh, you letting us poke some fun at you here and for sending in all this really fascinating material.
0: Good stuff. Thank you very much. All right, so let's dive in. All right, where do we start? We're gonna start here, Tarzan and tradition. This so um, this gentleman, uh, Jack uh, Holtzmark. That's right. This is someone you knew.
1: That's right. Right. So this is a part about Tarzan and tradition, and it's partly an homage uh, to my grad school professor, a brilliant man from whom I learned so much, so much. So what I have here in my hands is the eulogy or the obituary for Dr. Holtzmark. And I'd like to read a little bit of that because it explains why we are talking about Tarzan and tradition.
0: And this obit was written by another friend of yours. That's right, right? my
1: dissertation advisor, uh, Dr. John Finnamore. Right, Mm -hmm. right, right. So he says, it is with great sadness that the Department of Classics marks the passing of Erling B. Jack Holtzmark, who died July 17, 2022. Jack received a B.A. in Greek from the University of California, Berkeley in 1959, and a Ph.D. in classics from there in 1963. He came to teach classics at Iowa in the fall of 1963, and he was department chair from 82 through
0: 93. So I just want to uh, yeah. point out the fact that he uh, got his B.A. In, in 59, and he completed the Ph.D. four years later. Yeah. That's Unbelievable. That's rapid pace. <laughs> that
1: is. This guy was a genius. Yeah, I mean, he was absolutely brilliant. Before continuing with this uh, fascinating obituary slash eulogy, I want to share just one anecdote from his teaching, which for those of you who are listening and are teachers, I think this will prove to be gold. Maybe you already do this. Maybe you're, you're wiser than I was and, and am. I found this to be so helpful. If we were reading a passage of Cicero, Jack and I in this class, I had him for a Latin composition course. If I made a mistake with some form, let's say, for example, the the verb was amawit, right? Mm-hmm. From amara, so it's a third singular perfect amawit. Yeah. It'd be something like he loved. If I translated amawit as he will love, mm-hmm. most teachers, in my experience, would stop, would tell the student, you did that wrong, and would say, it's a perfect tense, you translated it as a future, and that's incorrect. hmm Okay, there's something valuable about that because mistakes should be corrected. Jack's approach was entirely different and so much better. He would say, okay, good effort, good effort. So there's always a little bit of praise. And then he would go up to the dry erase board or the chalkboard and he would write the two forms on the board. He would write amawit, which is the perfect tense, and then he would write amabit, which is the future. Yes, And he would say, David, what do you think about these two forms? What is the difference between these two forms? And so instead of just telling me um, why I was how I was wrong, mm-hmm. he recreated right for everyone to see the process that took place in my mind. Right? He made right. An, he made an image of what I had done and showed and allowed me to see how I was mistaken. Right. And why that's so brilliant is because really um, all learning is self-teaching. Yeah. Right. And when I see it like that. I'm less likely to make the same mistake a second time, right? Because the process has been clarified. Yeah, and I find that many teachers—I don't know if it's they just like being right, or it takes too much effort, or they've, they've <laughs> never thought of it. Right, right. They right. just correct the student and, right. and not give the student the chance to actually reason through the process. Yeah, so I've used that a thousand, ten thousand times since he showed me things like that. That's fantastic. It's it's just wonderful.
0: Yeah. So he was a, a, a natural teacher. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah.
1: Everything was interesting. He loved every subject that he taught. Hmm. There was no boredom ever. Um, he
0: was always fascinated with the material. That's fantastic.
1: You want to continue on there that Jack published?
0: Please. Uh, so Jack published numerous articles over the years on various topics, including on Homer, Aeschylus, Theocritus, Lucretius, and Quintilian. Later in his career, he became interested in contemporary literature and the classics, publishing Tarzan in Tradition, Classical Myth and Popular, Liter- Popular Literature in 1981. Edgar Rice Burroughs in 1986 in articles on classics and contemporary cinema and on detective fiction. Yeah. So when you had him as, as a as a, a professor, he was right. kind of in. He was steeped in this yes. part of his career. And he I got get,
1: I yeah. got to read some of his unpublished detective novels. Oh, really? Yes.
0: That's fantastic. He was
1: also a painter, and uh, he gave me one of his paintings, oh, uh, which goodness. is just so precious to me. Yeah. And you know what, you know what a still life is obviously, mm-hmm. but still life um, paintings are usually of things that are really appealing. Um, and not always, I mean, there is a tradition of painting the macabre um, in still life, but it's usually like a Cezanne painting, which is a bowl of fruit, Mm -hmm. you know, with peaches and the colors are all light and airy and lovely and so forth. Yeah. So his still life is two onions, (laughs) 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 two robust purple onions. Wow. And it's just quintessential Jack, Hope you still have it. I do. Of course. Yes. It's a, because he takes something that's a traditional form, right? The still life. Yes, and then gives it a clever and unexpected twist. Right, that's that's genius. That's that's great. So it goes on as chair in classics. Jack worked diligently to increase the number of English language courses at the University of Iowa. Uh, began, you know, publishing um, the journal Selecta Classica under his leadership. So on and so forth. Uh, Jack always lived life to the full. As a teenager in La Jolla, California, he was an avid surfer. When he was teaching at the University of Iowa, he took flying lessons and wrote about his experiences piloting in the book Private License, Private Thing in 1974. Wow. He took me golfing once. Really? Yes, it didn't turn out well. Just you two? Yes, he's a much better golfer than <laughs> I am. And he had me over to his house one summer to read uh, Euripides' Hecuba together.
0: My goodness. And he's
1: just very generous as a teacher and brilliant. Yeah. Just so sharp. The... Everything I know. He, he's. I think he's the one who said, look, if you want to read Greek, you need to read... Um, uh smythe's um great grammar every day just read a portion so i started doing that hmm. because he told me to yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> and uh, he had a, a brilliant way about him that's fantastic
0: man what a what a what a life
1: yes fantastic. yes
0: yeah all right so let's um are we gonna dive into tarzan now yes
1: tarzan and tradition we're gonna swing through okay and jeff we're gonna start with a quotation from rudyard kipling
0: okay have you read any kipling um the uh, jungle book right jungle
1: book that's yep. right yeah so uh this is from the wikipedia page mm. while tarzan of the apes met with some critical success subsequent books in the series received a cooler reception and have been criticized for being derivative and formulaic now mm. I, I want the listener to uh, focus on that word formulaic for just a moment because this is going to become a big part of the theme of tarzan and of our discussion okay the characters are often said to be two-dimensional the dialog wooden, and the storytelling devices, such as excessive reliance on coincidence, strain credulity. We need to focus on that, too, because right. this should start to sound familiar in a minute. According to Rudyard Kipling, who himself wrote stories of a feral child, the Jungle Book's Mowgli, Burroughs wrote Tarzan of the Apes just so he could, quote, find out how bad a book he could write and get away with it. <laughs>
0: So that's funny. It is. It's right. funny. But is it fair? Right. That's oh, the question. Right. I was going to say, I mean, if all this is true, what are, what are we even doing here? That's a right? great question. Okay.
1: Well, I think that the the brief of this book that Holtzmark wrote is that it is not true, and that Burroughs is actually a brilliant writer, hmm. and that Tarzan is a brilliant, thoroughly Homeric character. Okay. Surprised?
0: <laughs> now, do you happen to know from, from uh, knowing Jack and, and right. talking with him, how did he get... How did he get interested in Tarzan? Like, where did this come from?
1: I think it was a childhood interest. Okay. You know, he grew up in California surfing and watching the movies and so forth. Yeah. But he also had a wonderfully contrarian streak. And, uh, you know, as I read the book, I realized, my as I read the book, my contrarianism is not as fully developed as it ought to be. Hmm. You know, there are areas where I'm so contrarian, as you know, but other areas where I have just accepted conventional wisdom mm-hmm. pretty much unthinkingly. Right. Jack's not that kind of guy.
0: Right. So I think contrarian in the fact that and his take is completely different than Mr. Wikipedia's take. That's right. right? And but, Rudyard Kipling. But also contrarian in that this is something you would not expect a classicist to do. Exactly. Right. And it's not highbrow. It's right? not highbrow. Right. And so
1: these are some of the questions I want to get into at the beginning, and I want to pose a couple of them to you okay. uh, before we look at the book. Is what kinds of expectations should an individual have uh, for Pulp Fiction like this? Um. I. That is fiction that doesn't have pretensions to greatness. Now it may, in fact, be great, right? But it doesn't present itself with pretensions to greatness,
0: right? I would say, um, you know, I would come up with very low expectations. You okay, know, I think of in terms of this is a, a pulp fiction is the kind of novel that you pick up on the rack at the at the overpriced store as you're getting on a plane, right? Because you want something to kill a few hours, right? And you're not looking to be enlightened or taken or to, to find connections to kind of deeper wisdoms. This is something that is going to be basically all plot and not much else. That's okay. what I would expect.
1: All plot, no philosophical reflection, right? no character development. You're not supposed to really sympathize with the characters or develop relationships with them. Yeah. You're simply to follow the action.
0: Exactly. In In today's day and age, I think of Dan Brown. Okay. it's kind of this quintessential uh, kind of all... Hat no cattle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right.
1: Well, Jack wasn't like that. No. Right? So <laughs> when he comes to Tarzan, he's looking for uh, the things that make this literature um, so appealing. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it's from him I learned the uh, uh, part partly the notion that if something is really really successful and if it's really popular, there must be something good about it. Yeah. Do you know who the most um, successful best-selling author of all time I think is Stephen King. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I know you're a big King fan, right? I
0: wouldn't say so. No? Okay. No, no, there's some of the stuff I really do like, but...
1: But it's easy to dismiss a popular author as appealing to the least common denominator. Right. But th- I think there's more than a little bit of elitism um, Without a doubt. mingled into that.
0: Exactly. I would say that's true. Of um, I'm guilty of that in music. Uh, too. Oh, yeah. Right, right? yeah. The more people like something... You're the, sure guilty The more, of that. The more I'm inclined to, right. to to hate it. You don't yeah. even like Starship. No, I'm like... No, no, please, let's not talk about storytelling. Okay. Right? <laughs> all
1: right. Well, Jack took a completely different approach. Okay. So here's the dedication right. of the book. Uh, the book was published in 1981 to many students, past, present, and future, to their parents, to the people of Iowa. Oh, all right. He was an employee, you realize, yes. of the state of Iowa. All right, right, right. And so he
0: dedicated to the people of Iowa. That's correct. Oh, fantastic.
1: And there's more of that coming in just a minute. Okay. So let me just read from the preface. He says, I come to this study of Tarzan as a professional classicist, and I bring to it methods similar to those I apply to classical literature. This procedure lends itself to the study of Burroughs novels precisely because they are conceived and to a large extent executed in a manner that speaks of a classical background and classical influences. Hmm. Steering a course somewhere between popularization and scholarship, I shall address myself not only to the classicist, but also to professional and non-professional students of literature. In no sense am I engaging in a form of intellectual slumming. Hmm. Okay. What do you think?
0: I like it. No, I noticed that in the passage of the the book I read, I thought um, kind of his balance between the scholarly and also right. writing something that was, you know, for a lay audience was 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 very deft.
1: No condescension.
0: No, not at all. Right. And I think that's a really tough needle to thread.
1: It is a rare skill. Yep. There's more here at the end of the preface. Okay. He says, finally, the people to whom this book is dedicated have earned some recognition. Students often have to work to pay my salary. Their parents almost always do. And the people who pay the Iowa tax man have no choice. <laughs> These individuals should be thanked for supporting the fine university system of which I am privileged to be a part. They have made this work possible. I salute the Dedicons nice Latin word there—of yeah. right? this book. They put my family's bread on the table and they butter it. I am thankful for this.
0: That's great. That's that's got to be a wholly unique dedication.
1: I don't think I've ever read anything like that.
0: No, have, have you ever come across a dedication to the to the taxpayers? No, the, the state who support the
1: university <laughs> system, right? Uh, right. That was quintessential Jack. So, so unusual, so um, genuine and sincere yeah. in, in what he did.
0: So you read that and the end, it, that's, just, that's the guy? Named.
1: The image of the guy appears right before me. That's fantastic. Just like that.
0: Wow. So we're getting into Tarzan now. All right. And now we
1: see that, you know, a classicist is going to look at this pulp fiction-y question, uh, this pulp fiction-y story. hmm And we're going to set it up with a little more criticism in the Rudyard Kipling vein. Okay. And I'd like to get your response to this. Please. So this is from the introduction to the book. This is uh, page four. He says, the critics who have acknowledged Edgar Rice Burroughs, he's the author of Tarzan, of course, have not at all been kind to him. In a review of one Tarzan movie, a writer makes the following typical comment about the novel. Quote, I have never, I say it without pride, read Tarzan of the Apes, but I can well believe that it is a nauseating work. (laughs) another critic gives this thumbnail analysis quote the appeal of the tarzan stories was and is certainly not a literary one for burroughs just about totally ignored all the basic rules of style grammar and syntax to say that his writing was technically inept would be an understatement wow Hmm. the reasons for the hostility to burroughs works are many and seem to display recognizable patterns one of these patterns falls into the category of language and style Most critical opinion is negative about his English, although some have compared it to that of Henry James and Joseph Conrad. More typical, however, is the condescending observation by a reviewer who speaks of Burroughs prose as, quote, that loose fustian of the cheap newspapers, which is a literary standard for millions. Hmm. So I think when uh, Jack read these kinds of things, the same guy that dedicates his book to the taxpayer of Iowa, Mm -hmm. he's not going to like that kind of you know condescension that the the stupid masses look what they like it, there must be something bad about it right, or right right stupid about
0: it right or if if he's the contrarian that you that she said it was he's gonna read that and almost say well i am this is just firing me up to take uh, in some ways the opposite exactly right, yeah. yeah. yeah
1: or the next page perhaps kingsley amos i don't know who that is but is directing his barbs at this matter of style when somewhat despairingly he speaks of Burroughs' dreadfully fluent pen <laughs> <laughs> Another critic manages to excoriate not only the author, but also the reader. Quote, the modern half-educated reader is incapable of understanding a paragraph containing more than a single sentence. The modern writer is apt to get into serious difficulties as soon as he ventures upon a subsidiary clause. Thus, we have two excellent reasons for keeping our paragraphs as short as possible. Mr. Burroughs does this throughout.
0: Hmm. So what do you think? Wow, he's—I uh, mean, he's—he uh, set himself up for a monumental task, right? Right. He's got a lot of of. Uh, um, You're saying
1: Jack has Jack has
0: a, a lot of kind of of, of correction and, and mind changing uh, ahead of him. Mm-hmm. But it's a very bold and it's a very uh, uh, humorous way to start.
1: Absolutely. So I want to get your reaction to this part here. Okay. The carping about the improbability of Burroughs' fiction in both the Tarzan stories and the Martian and Venarian uh, set on Venus mm-hmm. accounts is extremely. Tiresome. Such literal minded critics are forever tied to the concrete world and will never understand that landscape may also be a matter of interior geography. If the criterion for acceptable literature is verisimilitude to the real world, not only must Homer be discarded, but also much else of the world's greatest literature, including the Bible. Hmm. Reality, as Plato long ago intimated, is not necessarily that which we see or apprehend with our senses. Hmm. If one reads literature, one tacitly renounces certain claims and expectations. There are times when the suspension of disbelief must be willingly and ungrudgingly granted, for otherwise the fiction simply will not work. Homer's Odyssey, for example, regales us with an incredible and fantastic series of events that could never be construed as real, yet the poem deals rigorously with reality. It comes down finally to a question of what one will accept in a literary creation.
0: Okay. All right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm totally on board with him there. Right. That's. I mean, I find that very persuasive. That's astute, but, isn't it? It's astute. I mean, it doesn't address. I mean, some of the the criticisms were kind of you know clunky grammar. And, You're right. And, and but in terms of if we're gonna if we're gonna rest our criticism on the believability of the story, well, he's saying that's a red herring.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And that goes a little bit to I think what um, we read from the criticism on the Wikipedia page. right? Yeah. How the critics find it formulaic. Yes. And how the critics find um, the coincidences so impossible to believe. They strain strain... credulity. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I've strained some noodles, but (laughs) credulity is something I've never strained. You
0: know, I think we, Kipling was just upset that people like Tarzan better than his Mo- than his Mowgli. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> right. That's a good story too. It is. But Tarzan is
1: just it's much more approachable. Hmm. Yeah. So the book is divided up into, if I'm not mistaken, five chapters. Okay. And it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get to all of them tonight because right. we've been spending some time setting it up. It, uh, the first chapter though is filled with fine material for students of Greek and Latin literature in particular. Okay. And the first chapter is on the subject of language. Now, the second chapter is technique. So that makes good sense, right? After you take the language, how are you going to uh, combine different elements of the language in order to form a uh, plausible technique? And this is what Burroughs does. The third chapter is in some ways the most interesting, and that is uh, entitled Animals. Hmm. So these are the main, other than Tarzan, all of the apes Mm -hmm. uh, and all the other um, elephants and lions and leopards and jaguars and things they are the main characters in the story okay maybe that's why it's so appealing to kids i think so definitely. that's why i liked it you didn't seem to like it i but. It,
0: it was just it never like it, i was relying on what my parents would bring home from. Okay. me okay right and so I, I tarzan would never kind of made it into the house hmm. it's like one of those, those stories that like i always knew about you know you know the yell yeah right but uh, i was reading in in the part of the, uh, of the book that i was um that i read earlier this week um burrow's himself was uh, complaining about some of the, the, the movie uh, production. Oh yes. Right? And says, no, that's not how I, I pictured the character. All oh, that's not. Right. How I, and uh, didn't, didn't like what Hollywood did with the lot right. Tarzan. And I think probably the, the few things that were encountered with Tarzan were probably some of these shows and movies. Right. Where I thought oh, that's, that's kind of silly. Not interested. Yeah. Right. Chapter four, mm-hmm. the hero.
1: Right. And that's going to be your time to shine. You think so? Be, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm ready. Okay. And then yeah. chapter five, of course, themes and, uh, I have to say the the content of the chapter is far more interesting than the titles. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of interesting titles. Is it time? It's time for the ads. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Jeff, you
0: were on vacation recently. I was. And
1: I have to assume you did not take the Racial 8 with you.
0: No, but oh, how I wish I had. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we had the the apartment we rented had there was a coffee maker a, if you want to call it. that. <laughs> right? So I mean it did the job for what we okay to, to get us through the morning. But man, a caffeinating
1: device basically man
0: did I miss my ratio I'll bet. eight
1: yeah. When you came home and you saw the ratio eight sitting there on the um on the countertop you know waiting for you was there like
0: an emotional moment? It that? was you know I had the, I had the the um. Uh, the pieces in the, the dishwasher, the okay. dishwasher had been run so it was ready and clean, oh. clean so I knew I did not want to wait at all, right? just to get those things out and, and plug it in and get the thing moving. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, so I got a new grinder. You did? Yes. A Baratza. Ooh. Picked it up from Ratio. It's a burr grinder. Yes. Which means I'm not sure what, but it uh, grinds the beans better and... Uh, Oh, it's just such a delicious cup of coffee.
0: Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I got some of their, um, Ratio's own coffee. Oh, their or, own roast. Their own roast, which I, I, up until very recently, I didn't even realize that was an yeah. option. And? Uh, fantastic. Good. E- Ethiopian mm. uh, grounds. It, it's wonderful, mellow, um, medium roast. Love it.
1: Can't go wrong with that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So if one of the listeners would like to pick up their own, mm-hmm. um, Coffee machine from Ratio, the 8 or the 6, what should they do?
0: They should go to RatioCoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O Coffee.com. And put in the coupon code ANCOB8, mm-hmm. and that will get them 15% off your entire order.
1: Yeah, B as in best, uh, right? best. that's what it the is. The best coffee that you could have? Yes, Indeed. I think that's right. Check it out. So we're not going to have any silly um, machine-generated limericks or not, anything? Not this time around. Right? Maybe the people who are listening at home should just write their own limericks? They,
0: they can. They can go on ChatGPT. Okay. Right? Maybe I, they
1: could write some and send them to us. That would, be,
0: that would be great, right? It's just a matter of time before AI takes over hosting this podcast. Are you sure I'm not okay. a, a robot right? Now? Nobody really knows, do they? <laughs> Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by the good people at Hackett Publishing. These guys have been with us since almost the very beginning of this podcast. Why are you <laughs> saying it with so much intensity? No, well, know it's it's emotion. Okay. It's emotion. I'm so thankful. Right? They took a, they took a chance on A couple of of yokels, a couple of chumps, some might say. We couldn't even pronounce podcast back then. (laughs) We couldn't. It was was ridiculous, right? (laughs) Um, But they took a chance on us. They've been with us uh, this whole time, so we're so grateful to them. Um, but it's not just that, No, they, it's a great publishing house. But
1: getting back to us, remember we yes. were trying to do the, the theme music with a
0: kazoo? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> exactly right. With, and then making sounds with our armpits and that's <laughs> no, just embarrassing. Maybe
1: you. And then Hackett came along and said, we want to sponsor you guys. And why did they do that? Well,
0: because they believed in us. No. And no, that's not why it They is. believed in the classics. That's what it was. Right. They well,
1: said, we want the classics to get to the masses. That's
0: what they do. Right. Because that's what they do every day.
1: Exactly. For the last 50 some years. Mm-hmm.
0: 52 years. Okay. They're, they're as old as I am. Right. Wow. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, but with their their offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, and Indianapolis. In, Indiana. Right. Um, they've okay. been bringing uh, great publications at great prices with great artwork. That's right. For all of these years. Uh, can't recommend them highly enough.
1: Where? W- why would you want to buy your classically themed books from any other book purveyor. You would not. You wouldn't. No. So what do our listeners need to do, Dr. Winkle They
0: need to go to HackettPublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T, Publishing.com. Check out their wide selection. And as we've talked about many times on the show, it's not just the classics. They have stuff from all corners of of anything that you might be interested in: Asian
1: studies, South yeah. American studies, Islamic studies, psychology, modern philosophy, aesthetics—you name it.
0: And they all will often have um, translations, multiple translations of the same work by different authors. Incredible! Um, it's really quite good. But go to hackapublishing.com, find the books that you want. Um, what's our coupon code there? It's AN. Yes. Two zero two three. Simple to remember. That's uh, right. AN ad and the present year. And that will get you a couple of great things, 20% off your entire order and free shipping. Check it out. All right, Dave, I think the, the best place to start here would be, be at the beginning. Yes. All right. And the first chapter is on language. That's correct. i wonder wondering, if, could you give us kind of a basic overview of, of what's his main thesis here? Right. So
1: Jack's thesis is that uh, appearances are deceptive. The kinds of negative and critical comments that Kipling and others uh, have made about Burroughs are actually very superficial. And it's because they don't understand what he's trying to do in the story of Tarzan. Okay. What he's trying to do is to create a world that's a very simple world in its presentation, but it has beneath that simple surface a layered depth. Okay. And I want to read a quote here from page nine. Uh, In the last few pages in this chapter on language, uh, Holtzmark has been developing Burroughs' use of the jungle and the highly repetitive descriptions of the jungle's appearance as a means of showing Burroughs' style.
0: Okay. All
1: right. He says, in his use of the jungle as psychological landscape, Burroughs displays the same masterful qualities that Homer, Virgil, and Ovid, especially in the Metamorphoses, do. In their deployment of descriptive passages of nature and the physical surroundings, they comment on or interpret human actions. Indeed, in much of classical literature, one finds this technique exploited to the full, and the above three authors do not exhaust the possibilities. Such descriptive elaborations of locale do not always adumbrate the shadier aspects of human existence and activity, but may equally well elucidate the sunlit world of the untrammeled primitive.
0: Interesting. So he's, I mean, he comes right out of the gate swinging. He's he's, he's comparing Burroughs with Ovid and Virgil
1: and Homer. And the particular use of style here in the description of the jungle. So maybe we should read a little bit of Burroughs himself. Let's do it. In case not everyone is reading Tarzan these days. Right. Right. Uh, Consider the following passage, says Holtzmark. A small natural amphitheater uh, which the jungle had left free from its entangling vines and creepers in a hollow among some low hills. The open space was almost circular in shape. Upon every hand rose the mighty giants of the untouched forest, with the matted undergrowth banked so closely between the huge trunks that the only opening into the little level arena was through the upper branches of the trees. End quote. Hmm. So he says Burroughs is not, of course, merely describing a physical universe. He is also arranging the appropriate backdrop against which human action and motive may be measured. Hence, the psychological ambiance of the landscape.
0: Okay, all right. So, I mean, right there from that passage, you know, I'm thinking about some of those criticisms about grammar and style. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't. That's it's not Shakespeare, but I mean, that's no. that's, that's, that's a wonderful description of a of, of a of a of a kind of a very uh, specific, unique uh, right. locale. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah, the, the language doesn't sparkle, I would say. Right. But those critics are missing the point of what he's trying to do.
0: Right. That's what Burroughs, that, that's, sorry, that's what uh, Jack is, is, exactly. is, is getting at. Okay. That's right. All right. All right. So, uh, Dave, how are some of the particulars of this developed throughout this chapter? here? Right,
1: right. right. So he talks about, um, a little bit later on, page 12, three characteristic features of ancient Greek and Latin style. He says they are polarity, chiasmus, and parallelism. And these are all prominent in Burroughs prose. So let's deal with these one at a time. Okay. Polarity, right? Polarity means recognizing opposites. It's very simple, Mm -hmm. right? Tall, short, large, small, hot, cold, so on and so forth. And Holsmark says the term polarity has begun to take on pejorative connotations as a result of overuse in political contexts. But as a literary term, it refers primarily to the habit of organizing a view of reality into sets of opposites. Mm-hmm. The perception of reality in the necessarily more comprehensive manner of a double point of view is a hallmark of Greek style.
0: In uh, in the world of theory, this would be this would be called structuralism. Okay, right. So yes, yeah, like you you kind of identify and you interpret. A work of, of literature along the lines of the opposites that it uh, yes. that it sets up. Okay, yes. yeah.
1: And this was a, a point that Holtzmark made repeatedly in the classroom. Uh, students of Greek know that there are these two Greek particles, right? These particles that are monosyllabic. One is men, the mu epsilon nu, and the other is de. And the Greeks of the classical period, they love to sprinkle men and de all over the landscape True. to create these interesting polarities. Yes. He says, the matter under consideration may be trivial. That's an important point. And the polar statement of it may, as a consequence, be little more than the reflex operation of a linguistic pattern. At the same time, two points of view are more elucidating, if not always closer to the truth, than one. Polar expressions in a style afford a broader survey and a fuller understanding of the person or event described. And then he gives some examples. To call the human race men and women, particularizes the concept and therefore views it with greater immediacy Hmm. right okay Uh, to call the human race all the greeks and barbarians also particularizes the concept but in a different way these two examples both of which are very common in greek literature show that polar expressions can strongly influence the way an audience views a given phenomenon the phrase daily life for instance is not very illuminating but if we use a polar phrase to describe the same thing we can greatly affect perceptions of the item described. Such terms as the daily agony and ecstasy, daily work and relaxation, daily bread and drink, daily thought and action, and any number of others all describe the basic idea of daily life, but each attaches quite distinct and different meanings to the general term.
0: Okay. Do you all see right. that? I do. Yeah. What, what do you think yeah, of it? I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Um, it, it makes me wonder, uh, so he, this is where he's jumping in, uh, into his whole argument, this is where the book begins, right? Yes, and he's saying uh,
1: this is how Burroughs succeeds yeah. because of his polarities. Okay,
0: yes, and I agree with that. Does he? Does um? Does Jack get into at all? Of um? Is he making the argument that that Burroughs deliberately did this? That's that really he, interesting. That he's is he, he that he had a classical education. That he when he was writing Tarzan, he he had Homer, he had Virgil, he had Aven in his mind, or is he saying that it was so kind of soaked into his persona and upbringing that it spills out anyway it's more the latter
1: okay so we'll get into a little bit later the fact that uh burroughs did read the classics and spent quite a bit of time reading caesar in particular Hmm. but jack never makes the claim that it is conscious deliberate imitation it's more along the lines that he soaked it up and he's a gifted writer Mm -hmm. who naturally went in that direction
0: okay all
1: right so if we talk about the podcast for example Mm -hmm. and our work here and we use it, um, we use the concept of polarity, right? When you left this evening, you know, left your family to come here and do this. Did you say, I'm going podcasting? Or did you say, I'm going to go engage in the recording and the erasing, right? Or, yeah. Or the, the nitty and the gritty, right? The laughter and the boredom. Yes. Those polarities, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, illuminate
0: yes i i i'm sad to say that i think i said i'm off to pod that's is that what, what you said <laughs> exactly there was there was nothing polarized
1: there was nothing yes. uh, literary right. Hmm. <laughs> right, right well that's too bad that's right. too bad well let's have a tarzan example okay. right? yeah please. of this notion of polarity yeah burroughs delights in the polar view of the world that he creates and this polar outlook permeates the handling of themes tarzan's father i'm reading here from page 13 john clayton receives his commission to go to Africa to untangle a diplomatic difficulty. So this is before Tarzan was left, you know, because his parents died in the jungle and he was found by apes. And uh, it says he was quote, both elated and appalled. The polar expression, which particularizes the mixed emotions of the man helps to characterize Clayton for it serves as the basis of the immediately following elaboration of the commission as a promotion for his career and a setback for his wife's well-being. And all that's accomplished, right? Yes. By um, using these polarities. He was both elated and appalled, rather than saying, more simply, he had mixed emotions. Right. Or he brooded, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. would be suggestive, but it wouldn't spell things out in a way that uh, further stimulates our
0: imagination. Good. No, that's right. it's nice. And all of this, of course, underlines... Um, the, the the polarized character of Tarzan himself. Exactly. Right? Where does he belong? He doesn't. You know, he doesn't belong. Right. He is. I'm going to drop the L word here, but he's liminal. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. He is.
0: Is that where does it means? Um. From what I know of the Tar- Tarzan stories, is that yeah he, he has his most famous adventures in the jungles. Right. But he also we see him in America. We he's see in him, Wisconsin. We, we see him in Wisconsin. We see him in London. That's right. And so he has these 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 places where he's kind of brought back to civilization, and it, that question of you know where does the hero belong? Yep. Um, and one of the things that makes, I think, Tarzan interesting is that he's, he, yeah, like you said, ultimately, he doesn't really belong anywhere. Right. And that's what makes him so interesting. And so he's already, the, the character is polarized. Exactly. And so the language itself kind of has point, to reflect that. Has to reflect that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let me read just
1: a few more quotes here, which will uh, further illuminate your uh, excellent point. This polarity appears frequently in some form, including man and ape, mm. civilized man and jungle folk, Korak the human, and Akut, the ape, and woman and female ape. Or to quote from the book itself, Tarzan of the apes had a man's figure and a man's brain, but he was an ape by training and environment. His brain told him that the chest contained something valuable. This is when one of his adventures, he's you know, he's seeing some box he wants to open. His training had taught him to imitate whatever was new and unusual. So these are the more uh, polarizing aspects of language. And Holtzmark says, this use of polarized language would have been very familiar to an ancient Greek.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Is he, is he saying that if that kind of polarized, that polarized language, that's something that the, crit, the modern critics did not like? No, they don't like it. They don't, okay. So they're saying they don't that,
1: recognize its value. They right. find
0: it repetitive, the, the, repetitive sim- and simplistic, clunky. Yes. Okay. All right.
1: Uh, and um, a little bit jarring, right? Yeah. Um, because it doesn't have the notion of sophisticated. It's not like the 19th century novel, right? If you have read, um, Dickens or Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or um, Victor Hugo, some of the great, really great 19th century novels, Mm -hmm. all of which I love, right? This is very different. Right. But that doesn't mean it's inferior. Right. And that's what Holtzmark's trying to point out.
0: Right. Right.
1: He goes on, you know, he talks about contrasting polarities of dream reality, memory reality, pleasure sorrow, hunters, tillers, man made town versus God made jungle. Uh, native versus white, war versus peace, past versus future, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, are we ready for the second one? Let's do it. All right. So, the first one was polarity, A versus not A. Yes. And the second one is chiasmus. Chiasmus, yes. which is the
0: order of A, B, B, A. Abba, a great uh, Swedish dance <laughs> pop group. Yeah, yes. I
1: suppose. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Am I supposed to like them? I I have to have to listen to you carefully in order to know what kind of pop music I can like. Abba was one of those
0: like. those those groups that everybody. Deep down likes, but many people don't admit it. They
1: don't want to admit it? Yes. Okay. Chiasmus, the second basic feature of both Greek and Latin style, is more at home in a highly inflected language, like Greek or Latin, than in less synthetic ones, like English. It is, however, found in English, too. At its simplest, a chiasmus is an arrangement of four words in such a way that A is to B as B is to A. The A's and the B's may be adjectives, nouns, verbs, words for sitting, standing, doing, or any other set of terms that share some common principle or characteristic. So just to digress for a moment, Mm -hmm. this is something else that Jack taught me, and it has been extremely useful in my teaching. And I don't know if my students like it, but whenever possible, if there is a complicated clause in Greek or Latin, some complicated syntax, he was always in favor of reducing it to its most simple elements. You would say let's strip away all the modification and let's represent this using symbols so there'd be a b c d a prime b prime it looked mathematical hmm. mm-hmm. and so for that reason some students don't like it right but right, um, right. i found it incredibly clarifying in a uh, complicated passage
0: yeah yeah
1: represent things by symbols right you can choose um you know based on the sounds of the words you can choose based on the part of speech you can choose based on the number of syllables, the length of the word. There's just so many different options.
0: Right. So now how does he see... So he's already said that um, uh, a, a, a language like English does not lend itself well to uh, a, a pattern like, uh, like a chiasmus. Right. right. So it's difficult uh, to do. Difficult to do. So how does Burroughs pull this off?
1: Well, here's a great example. Okay. He's uh, talking about Sabor the lioness in one of the Tarzan novels. You okay. don't like Sabor? <laughs> S- Sabor. <laughs> You can make fun of it. (laughs) That's all right. right. Like a thing of bronze, motionless as death, sat Tarzan, Sabor passed beneath. The chiasmus is obvious, Holtzmark says. Sat, Tarzan, Sabor passed. Hmm. A-B-B-A. It is very compact, for there are no intervening words or phrases to break up the perfect structure. It should also be noted that chiasmus, as in this example, often lends itself to contrasts of the type we examined in connection with polar expressions. Here for instance, we have the underlying polarities of rest versus motion, sat versus past, and man versus animal, Tarzan versus Sabor. And the chiastic arrangement creates a certain tension in the placement of the opposition.
0: That's that's really quite brilliant. It's brilliant.
1: It is. <laughs> I mean, not only is it brilliant for Burroughs to write it, yeah. it's brilliant for Holzmark to recognize that's what, it.
0: That's what I was thinking. That's even, yeah. even more ingenious. And so right. as I
1: made my way through this book, you know, now, of course, obviously, I'm a little biased because I love the man. Mm-hmm. right? I learned so much from him. He was wonderful. Nevertheless, it's persuasive. The critics of Burroughs have given him a you know a raw deal they, they did not pay attention to what he was doing right
0: no not not i, don't, I think beyond that they had no idea right. what he was doing right
1: Yep. here's another example uh, as the moon declined slowly toward the lofty foliage horizon of the amphitheater the booming of the drum decreased and lessened were the uh, decreased and lessened were the exertions of the dancers until at last the final note was struck and the huge beasts turned to fall upon the feast they had dragged thither for the orgy. So he says, a very simple chiasmus here provides the organizing impetus for a very balanced rhythmic structure. You get two sets of subjects and verbs, booming, decreased, lessened exertions. Hmm. Get it? A lovely A B B A, something you'd find in Virgil, uh, in Demosthenes, in Cicero, it's, it's just the same.
0: Right. Now that, that I'm, to be a little bit um, softer on the critics okay i think that that like once i get this 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 particular lens and that you know when i have uh um kind of spelling it out right. and saying this is this is the better way to read this passage well then it comes alive right without that i can see it the the, the phrasing would hit the ear yep. in an odd kind of way but if you have that particular outlook if you have that framework then it becomes something else entirely so yep. yeah yeah Should we go on to the third? Yes,
1: uh, parallelism. Parallelism. So the third major feature, uh, page 20 of the book, of Greek and Latin style is what may be thought of as the complement of chiasmus, parallelism. And if I can pause for a moment, right, nobody's going to pick up this book, probably. It's out of print, but nobody's going to pick up this book, Tarzan and Tradition, um, in order to learn about... Yeah, the subtitle is Classical Myth in Popular Literature. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to pick it up to learn about Greek and Latin, but if they bothered to read the first two chapters, they would learn a tremendous amount about these languages because Jack knew so much. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's great.
1: So parallelism is no doubt more comfortable a mode in English than chiasmus, and it appears more commonly than initial impressions may suggest. If chiasmus is A-B-B-A, parallelism, by contrast, is A-B-A-B. Okay. So here he gives an example from Alexander Pope. All right. Right, the the English poet. uh, From his work Spring. In spring the fields, in autumn hills I love. A, B, A, B. Okay, yeah, got it. This is quite a common feature in Burroughs, uh, says Holtzmark.
0: Now, does he give um, corresponding um, ancient uh, examples of parallelism? Or is 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 he not using this to make
1: kind of the... The classical, you can just assume reference. that because he says it's true,
0: okay. All right, <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if it he... is true, okay. <laughs>
1: You're a student of Greek and
0: Latin, you know they love their
1: parallelism.
0: Yeah, I was just wondering if he had included like a, a uh, an example from antiquity. There, mm,
1: I read every word of the book and I don't remember seeing okay. a, an example. All right, maybe I've missed it. Here is one from um, <clears throat> the book Tarzan, okay. Um, the hero kills a lioness and as a result saves the life of Jane. And his cousin john higher crept the steel forearms of the ape man about the back of sabor's neck where's the i'm okay higher higher a crept b Mm -hmm. the steel forearms of the ape man subject with modifiers c weaker and weaker a became b the verb c the lioness's efforts got it object with modifiers got it got it got it okay a b c a b c very interesting you're not persuaded no I, think I am you got a little bit of skepticism no
0: going on there. I, I like the, the uh, I thought the chiasmus argument was much more powerful maybe I just found that just more more intriguing yeah I just because it's always been because it well it just changed the way I I heard the passage right and um but um no I'm I'm with him so I'm not doubting uh Jack's well, you thesis can doubt. At all.
1: no this is this is great okay yep how about you read uh, a little bit here of the Tarzan quote?
0: Sure. Um, so Holtzmark uh, sets this up saying that this is an interestingly developed sentence occurs here. A young she-ape Tika, pursued by a leopard, is rescued by Tarzan. And so now to Burroughs. And just as Tika sprang for the lower limb of a great tree, and Sheeta rose behind her in a long, sinuous leap, the coils of the ape boy's grass rope shot swiftly through the air, straightening into a long, thin line, as the open noose hovered for an instant for an instant, above the savage head and the snarling jaws.
1: So, what do you think of that, as prose?
0: In- interesting. It's interesting. I mean, I. It's very. Um, it's very vivid. I can see all of that happening. Yes. Like, in my in my mind's right. eye. Right. Spells it out nicely. Right. I mean, I, again, I wouldn't look at this and say that is. These are you know great uh, literary pearls. No. But um, it's very vivid, and right. I think for the kind of story that Bros is trying to, to tell. Right. Right. Um, it's very very gripping it's very very clear
1: it's not about the interior
0: right exactly and it's, i find so much of of criticism that uh i can, that, that almost this idea that the more the more unclear the more the more um gray areas that there are well then by by default that has to be the better right. rose right and so um i always appreciate clarity and that goes for what i'm reading of burroughs here but also of of of, of Jack's book, right? Like, clarity is
1: is a is a good thing. Absolutely, right. Jeff, can you read a little bit of the interpretation there to put it in the right context?
0: Right. So hold smart and I Says the main sentence: the coils, the air is comfortably tucked in between two surrounding subordinations that are of approximately equal length. The subordinations are varied in that the one at the beginning of the sentence takes the form of two temporal clauses introduced by as. But the one at the end is a particip- participial modifier, straightening with its own subordination as the noose. Mm. So he's finding a, a very kind of layered, yes. um, complex, and balanced construction right. to what we were just saying. That's like, well, it, it's vivid, it's fine, right? But he sees a a, a, kind of a beauty and an order in it that is, I think, not not apparent just to the na- to the naked eye. Right. right. Yeah.
1: So when we were in our Latin composition class. Uh, with jack we were reading through cicero's second philippic Mm -hmm. right this is the really long most brilliant one may have never been published but um you know written against mark antony yeah so that was what we were reading and then we were writing our own compositions pretty clumsily at least in my case yeah and jack would say you know when we'd say um to him how are we going to really learn this material and he would say well go home this evening right when you're done with your classes and instead of watching something on television take out a large sheet of paper and try to write out the entire sentence and diagram it. He said it doesn't have to be, you know, a technically accurate diagram. Just show the relationships between the words and draw pictures and so forth. Just perfectly um, direct and helpful instruction like yeah. that. Advice of how to do things. And I've done that so many times to such
0: great benefit. That's that's really quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. What was his... Um what was his specialty? Like, what do you know? What he did his doctoral training in?
1: I I can't remember what his doctorate was in. His specialty was Homer, okay, and Lucretius. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, he was very fascinated by Homer and Lucretius. All right. Yeah. So I had him for the uh, rapid readings class in Greek, the first part. Mm-hmm. So you know where you read three hundred lines of Homer in a in a night. Yeah. Sure. <laughs>
0: My gosh.
1: <laughs> yes, but he was he was uh, so expert. It was not at all unpleasant. Hmm. And we spent a lot of time in the um. Archaic poets, you know, Theognis and Bacchylides and, and Corinna and those kinds. Yeah. Uh, Mimnermus and Tertaeus. Fascinating stuff. Fantastic.
0: Do we have time to talk a little... He talks in this first chapter a, a bit about Burroughs' own education.
1: Yes, I think we should probably wrap it up with that. Okay. That. All right. So page 31, mm-hmm. Holtzmark is talking about the biography of Burroughs uh, written by Erwin Porges. He says, it is from Burroughs' studies and early reading that the seeds must have been sown... Not only for the ideas and themes with which he was obsessed, but also for the particulars of the language, style, and narrative technique he came to use. As a youth, Burroughs had difficulties in school, and as a result was shunted about from one institution to another. That's kind of a common theme, isn't it, for artists and authors that they don't have happy childhoods? Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Exactly. He does not appear to have been particularly fond of school or the subjects he had to study, but like most students in the high schools of the day, he did study Latin. We also know that during the apparently unhappy period, once again, at Phillips Academy, 1891 to 1892, he studied Greek. It is not clear if Burroughs studied more than first-year Greek at Phillips, but since he had already studied Greek at the Harvard School in Chicago before being sent to Phillips, it is not unlikely that he in fact did some Homer in Greek. It is clear, however, that Burroughs was quite a Latin student, for by his own admission he devoted some eight years to the language. Hmm. He read, among other authors, parts of Ovid and Virgil's Aeneid, but above all from the commentaries of Julius Caesar. Okay. So I just want to read this one quote, then, about his reliance upon Caesar, and then we'll uh, we'll start to wind down here. All right. He says Burroughs, having studied Latin for eight years, was no novice in the language, and simply by having read Caesar, must have absorbed these features of the style, repetition. If he did in fact also read homer and other greek authors in greek he could not have failed to take cognizance of the repetitions for homer is much more repetitive in the sense shown in appendix one than any other ancient author Mm -hmm. what i am suggesting then is that burroughs relies greatly on clusters of similar vocabulary and the stylistic patterns we have examined because consciously or not he is following the model of these classical authors whom he read in latin and to a lesser and more uncertain extent greek
0: Okay. All right. So there's the foundation. Yeah. So that answers uh, your earlier question, it does. really. Yep.
1: You know, was it deliberate or did he just soak it in?
0: Right. Exactly. And I think, in the, in the grand scheme of things, of course, for the point that the Spark is trying to make, it doesn't really matter. No. No. And so the, the, um, the tradition is so embedded in the culture. Right. Um, but, I mean, I like these details that of of um, his Latin study. Yeah, eight and, years of uh, reading Caesar. Right. And so, we have it on, on record that he was, he was at least for some time, soaked in the stuff. Right. And so, it's not surprising then that in his own literary ambitions, this stuff would spill out. Yep.
1: One really interesting point that I didn't read, which Holtzmark makes in that section, I'll just summarize it, is that some of the translations of Caesar are flat because English style and convention is so different. Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I often like to tell students, um, I, mean, I learned this from Homer, um, the Greeks and the Romans, they liked repetition uh, in word choice. They were more interested in the syntax and arrangement of the words than variety, where if you are an English author and you use the same word repeatedly in the same section, it's a mark of bad style. Yes. Opposite is true for the Greeks and Romans. Very to true. reuse the same word is, you know, striving for clarity, and it's more along the lines of... What can you do with that particular word yes. rather than what replacement can you find? Exactly. Right.
0: So, that, 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 that that's an excellent point. Mm-hmm. Right. But, Dave, we're up against it. We got to get out of here. Yeah, we didn't even get out of chapter one. Wow, okay. So, definitely at least another episode. One more
1: episode. All right. Yeah. Chapter right. two, technique, then animals, heroes, and themes. And uh, we're going to get back to the Aeneid, right? We're we going to finish... We two got, more. We
0: got uh, we got book twelve to go. Book right?
1: twelve. Hopefully, two more. Maybe three. Probably just two episodes.
0: Yes. All right. We have
1: some people to thank, also, don't we, Jeff?
0: Who's that? Who do we got to thank? I know we got. Oh, I don't know. We got to thank Mishka. Who's that? That, who, that? That's our engineer. Oh right, she, right. She does all the she does all the the hard work behind the scenes. She works for us. She does. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, what about those music guys?
1: Yes, we got Scott Van Zen with the screaming guitar at the beginning and the end, and Ken Tamplin with the bumper music for the ads as well as composing most of the things that you're hearing.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, if a listener wants to write to us, Mm -hmm. they should uh, write to you. At Dave at ad nauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to you, yes. Jeff
1: at ad nauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Not in Jeff, but in ad nauseum with yes. a V V
0: right there. So if you got ideas for episodes, if you want a shout out, especially um, th- tell us what you're thinking, what you like, what you don't like, don't hesitate mm-hmm. to contact us.
1: Pick up a t shirt, pick mm-hmm. up a hat. You can go to ad nauseum.com and check out our Lurch with Merch yep. section. You can get a uh, Erasmus-themed T-shirt of Hercules holding up the world or wrestling with a Nemean lion, much as Tarzan did.
0: Yes, very fashionable. Um, I wouldn't be seen in the street without that's without right it on my on my person. <laughs> so next week we're gonna we're gonna continue our look at this fascinating book. Yep. Um, this really kind of kind of um, it's kind of oddball, out of left field. Came out of nowhere. It right? Came out, out of
1: nowhere. Generous, yeah. who knew that Tarzan was closely linked to the classical tradition? That's what makes it wonderful. Yeah. Jack knew, but uh, now everybody can. Yes. And um do you want me to talk about some of my course offerings? Oh,
0: though, of course. Yes, tell us about uh tell us about your your Greek and Latin okay. uh, courses. Yeah.
1: So, uh we are going to offer a sale on the Moss method for Greek mm-hmm. May 1, 2 and 3, we're going to offer 20% off. We've never done that. Fantastic. 20% off mossmethod.com if you want to learn to read Greek with me. And also if you want to learn Latin, we're offering 20% off the A Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata course that's based on Hans Orberg's famous text, Familia
0: Romana. All right. You want to say a little bit what's contained in those courses? Uh, Oh,
1: well, there's just so much. For the Moss, it takes you right into reading actual Greek, very lightly doctored from the very beginning. And uh, the first module has 40 lessons with explanatory videos as well as extensive interaction with me as your teacher expert, self-paced, accessible. The Latin course uh, is also a video-based course that features interaction with me as the instructor, and uh, it will take you from the ground up so that you can start Speaking Latin, reading Latin, and writing Latin from the very first lesson.
0: And where can they find these on the internet? They can find... Right.
1: They go to mossmethod.com or latinperdmcom slash LLPSI. Fantastic. So I think we're ready for it now, Jeff. Yes. And uh, you have
0: the gustatory parting shot, do you not? I do. And this comes from one of my all-time favorites, Mr. I Jim Gaffigan. Um, I, I mean, I heard this quote live in one of his, his yes. sets, right? It's now also in his book called Food a love story. (laughs) And here's the quote. I love the phrase, I have a sweet tooth. I always want to say, you're ordering it for your tooth? That's interesting, because it's going straight to your butt. I think your butt owes your tooth an explanation. Thanks for listening. Thanks.